0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message.
1: Revelation 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, And I heard the number of the sealed hundred and forty four thousand sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel Twelve thousand from the tribe of Judah were sealed. Twelve thousand from the tribe of Reuben. Twelve thousand from the tribe of Gad Twelve thousand from the tribe of Asher Twelve thousand from the tribe of Naphtali Twelve thousand from the tribe of Manasseh Twelve thousand from the tribe of Simeon Twelve thousand from the tribe of Levi Twelve thousand from the tribe of Issachar For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Father, we're just blown away by the majesty of your word as it's read aloud, and uh, we're so thankful that you've not left us in the dark about who you are and what you require. And We pray, Lord, as we open your word that you would give us insight, that you would show us. What you have for us this morning the food for your kids we also lord this morning want to pray for our nation we pray that our nation would be a place of peace and unity and justice that we would share common kingdom values from your word that would bind us together we pray too lord for revival in this land to a nation that doesn't know you doesn't want to know you we pray lord that that the tribulations of this present age would bring repentance We pray, Lord, that you'd start that revival with us. We are well aware of our own sin. We have done things we ought not to do, and we have not done things we should have done. We're a sinful people, but as we enter your presence, Lord, we know that we are washed with the blood of the Lamb. We pray that you'd transform us. We pray that you would fill us with the fruit of your Spirit. Lord, that we'd be a people known for grace and humility and joy and hope and peace and care for all people. Lord, this is a gospel work. This is a spirit work. This is your work. And we pray that you do it for your glory. And all God's people said, amen. Guys, how should we think about tribulations? That's what this section's really about. The Greek word for tribulations is philipsis. It means to squeeze or to crush. Like an olive is uh, squeezed or crushed in a press. Those tribulations are either external or internal pressures that relentlessly squeeze or crush us. All of us have experienced tribulations. How should we think about tribulations? Well, that's what Revelation six through nine does for us. Many of the tribulations in this chapter, in chapter six, would not have been a surprise to the original hearers. They wouldn't have read Revelation six in the first century and thought, no way, wars, famines, No, these were all common things in the first century. They would not have been surprised to hear about wars and famines and earthquakes and plagues. These are things they experienced in their lifetime. These are things that they experienced recently in their history. For example, the church of Laodicea, uh, 30 years earlier, Laodicea in 60 AD was destroyed by an earthquake. The whole city was leveled. 20 years earlier than the book of Revelation was written in 70 AD, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in a conflict with the Romans, completely leveled the place, killed 1.1 million people in Jerusalem. They knew about wars. They knew about death and destruction and tribulation. In fact, there was just the amazing violence of the, of the empire they lived in. The Roman Empire was an extremely violent empire. One chieftain that was overtaken by the Romans said that the, the Romans make a desert and they call it peace. That's what he said. They destroy our place and they call it peace. Tribulations have been common in the first century. Tribulations have been common to God's people all throughout time, right? Uh, the 14th century was a particularly bad time to be a Christian in Europe. After the Mongols had invaded parts of Europe, during the uh, 1300s, there was the Great Famine, killed at least 10% of the population. About 30 years later, the Black Death came in, took out another 40%, at least. There was something like 100 million people died of the plague. And of course, there's been severe tribulations of our own people, even in this time, right? You think of believers in places like Nigeria, You know, David was talking about the freedom that we have to worship here. In Nigeria, not uncommon to have a worship service and have somebody light the building on fire while you're in it, okay? Or Saudi Arabia, where it's illegal to be a Christian, or in places like North Korea. The tribulations in chapter 6 are shocking and scary to us because we live in a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity. We freak out when there's no toilet paper, okay? (laughs) Okay? And so this list of plagues and tribulations and difficulties, it sounds strange and scary to us because we live in such a strange time of peace and prosperity, a very strange, our time is strange. That's not strange. And what's new in in chapter six is not the tribulations it speaks of, but the meaning it gives to them. I think we can be so distracted by that list of tribulations that we don't see the meaning that Revelation gives to tribulations. The book of Revelation guys was given to us so that we can endure tribulation in a way that will give us courage and hope and joy, even in the midst of adversity. That was not my experience with the book of Revelation the first time I had been exposed to it. I was saved when I was 13 at a Christian school. And right after I was saved in our Bible class, they played a thief in the night, okay? And A Thief of the Night is loosely, extremely loosely based on the book of Revelation, okay? And I was traumatized by it. Now, when I say I was traumatized by it, I mean I am traumatized by it. In fact, if you go on the reviews of that movie online, you'll see about a quarter of them are people saying that they've been traumatized since they were a child seeing that movie, okay? That's not the effect that the book of Revelation was meant to have, was it, to God's people? Do you really think that God gave the book of Revelation to scare his people? Think about it. The original readers, John and the original readers, they had plenty of things to be afraid of already. It wasn't like God was like, you don't look afraid enough. Let me send you something that's really going to freak you out. No, God gave this series of visions not to scare them, to give them courage. And so I want to say to you this morning, if you're using the book of Revelation in a way that makes you more fearful, you're using it wrong. Okay? that's not what it's meant for. It's meant to give you courage and strength. It's meant to be a gift to God's people. And so when we look at Revelation 6 through 9, we're going to see a new way to look at tribulation, a way that's going to give us courage, a way that's going to make us a non-anxious witness in this culture that seems chaotic. Amen? So what does chapter nine, six through nine teach us about tribulations? The first thing it teaches us is that God is sovereign over all tribulations. The Bible teaches an unpopular truth that God, not chance, not evil powers, ultimately controls everything that happens. I'm going give you a shocking verse, Isaiah 45, seven, write it down. You'll think I'm making it up. Isaiah 45, seven, God says this, I form light and create darkness I make well-being and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Not popular, right? Not a popular truth. But it, it actually is ultimately encouraging. Guys, tribulations don't come through the action of the gods or fate like the Romans would teach. Tribulations don't come by the will of the universe like the New Age teaches now. They don't come by random chance like naturalism teaches. They come from God. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 27, asks this, what do you understand by the providence of God? And the answer is, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, Fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Amen? Amen. And we see that truth here in chapter six, because we've got to remember all the crazy things you see in chapter six are coming by the opening of seals. Who was the one worthy to open those seals? Do you remember from last week? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, the lamb that was slain, is the one that's opening all of the seals that we see in chapter six. And so God is sovereign over tribulations. Secondly, God uses tribulations to warn the lost. God uses tribulations to warn the lost. When major disasters come on the world, God is warning the world that all is not right between humanity and him. Turns out there's a long war between humanity and God that started in the garden in Genesis chapter three. And just to remind you, we started it. Okay. But there's been this long war and the brokenness we see in the world. It's called the curse. The brokenness we see in the world is a reminder. It's a graphic depiction that things are not right with God. It's God not leaving us without a witness that there's a conflict. The curse is the way our broken relationship with God is now graphically depicted in our broken relationships with each other and our broken relationship with creation. Because of the curse, human beings are no longer, no longer friendly to each other. And the creation is no longer friendly to us. And you guys, the, the, the creation not being our friend, I can illustrate this way. This is the reason why for you to camp in the woods for one night requires $26,000 worth of equipment. Okay? <laughs> Do you know why that is? Because creation's not our friend right? We're not on friendly terms with creation. George Whitefield, the the evangelist in the 1800s, he said this, or the 18th century, he said this, dogs bark at us and tigers want to eat us because they've taken up God's side of the quarrel right? Creation's no longer our friend. And to be honest, we have not been real friendly back, right? We have turned our back on the one who can make the world whole. And in doing so, we've torn the world in two. And so you see these tribulations of war and famine and plagues and natural disasters. They all exist as a warning that things are not okay between humanity and God. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains, Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And with that megaphone of tribulations, he's saying, repent. In fact, if you read through Revelation 6, 7, 8, and then you get to the end of 9, at the end of the trumpet judgments, you'll read this. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor gave up worshiping demons or idols of gold or silver or bronze or stone or wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. The implication is they should have, right? So when you see all the things that happened six through nine, there should have been repentance that at the end of chapter nine, it's like, but they didn't repent of it tribulations, guys, also we see in the book of Revelation tend to clarify one's attitude towards God. We can see in Revelation 16 that after a lot of these tribulations have come, it says they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had brought power over these plagues and they did not repent or give Him glory. And so we actually see in the book of Revelation, not only a lack of repentance by some, some certainly do repent, but there's a lack of repentance by some, but not only that, but a hardening towards God. That those tribulations actually brought hardening. It says they curse him. Uh, Spurgeon once said, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And I just want to plead with you this morning. I don't know what terrible difficulties you've had in your life, what kind of things you've had to endure, but be the wax. Be the wax, not the clay. Let your tribulations lead you back to the lamb, the lamb who had endured the ultimate tribulation on the cross to give you peace. Peace. This is not a God who doesn't know what it's like to suffer. This is a God who suffered on the cross for you. Let the tribulations in your life lead you back to Him for peace. Because tribulations, guys, are they are warnings of a coming judgment? And we've all seen this work, right? When something like 9 11 happens or even this current pandemic, you get friends and family that aren't believers and they say, Hey, so does this have anything to do with the book of Revelation? Right? Did you guys get any of those kind of calls? I got several of those kind of calls. You know, what's that about? They know instinctively, guys, that this is a foreshock of something bigger coming. They know instinctively, because we're made in God's image, we know that these tribulations mean something bigger is coming. And we've all felt it too, right? When there's a big earthquake, or you go outside at night, because of all the fires, the moon's red, you're like, oh, is it go time? What's What's going on here, right? You have those experiences, and you should. That's what they're for. That's what tribulations are for, it is to remind us that something more is coming. The return of Christ is coming. And guys, that's a tremendous grace of God, isn't it? Isn't it tremendously gracious of God to warn people ahead of time through suffering and difficulty that, that the judgment's coming? I mean, it'd be a very cruel thing to leave stuff entirely peaceful until he returns, right? And I just want to say to you this morning, those of you who have not come to Christ yet, I think you'd agree with me this morning that you, the reason you haven't come to Christ, that it's not because God hasn't warned you this year, right? The reason you haven't come to Christ is not that God hasn't warned you this year. I think you could be honest with me, and if you search in your heart, he has warned you. And when he returns, you're going to say, yeah, I knew. This is something I already knew. I knew this was coming. I just didn't want to deal with it. These catastrophic warnings are like foreshocks of an earthquake. And that's the pattern you see in the seven seals, those are judgments in chapter 6, the seven trumpets, you see those in 8 and 9, and then the bowls which come later. I believe that all of these sequences overlap that, that what they're depicting is the difficulties and the tribulations that occur between Jesus's first coming and his second coming. And they're depicted by first, by a bunch of seals and then by a bunch of trumpets and then by a bunch of bowls that are poured out. But each sequence, even though they overlap, each sequence becomes more intense and more focused on the end of the sequence. Okay. So for example, the seven seals talks, most, many of them affect a quarter of the earth then you get to the trumpets and they affect a third of the earth and I know for you guys that you know math isn't your thing that's more okay <laughs> and then later you have the bowls and in the bowls it's more of a global judgment right so these three sequences the sequence of the seals the trumpets and the bowls they're replaying all the tribulations that happened between Jesus' first coming and his second coming but each one gets more intense and each one focuses more on the end part the judgment and so you have the seals And they play out and show, okay, these kinds of things are going to happen. And then Christ returns, seal six, Jesus returns, right? And then it rewinds, rewind, change angle to a different spot. Okay, let's do trumpets. Shows all the tribulations that happened during that period. Stop, rewind, come back. Okay, let's do bowls. Everything from a different angle. Because guys, the book of Revelation, it isn't linear. We know that because he's coming back at the end of chapter six. There's a lot of book of Revelation left. It's not linear. It's not, it's cyclical. It recapitulates, it recaps, it uh, replays, it it does it from different angles with different intensities and more and more focus on the final judgment. And so these first few seals, if you look at chapter six here, you see these seals of different judgments. These act as like four shocks of a massive earthquake. And then in chapter six, we see his actual coming. Okay. Uh, Take a look at chapter six, verse 12. This is the sixth seal. He says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black like sackcloth, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place, and the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone. Slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, crying out to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand. So this last this sixth seal is, is more than just a warning, right? This is the judge arriving and he's judging the people. And the question goes out. The most important question is at the end of that, what is the question who can stand? Who can stand at his appearing? Like it says in Malachi 2, who can stand at his appearing? That's the question all of these foreshocks that we're experiencing even now should, should cause us to ask. Every time we see some great calamity in the world, the question we should ask is who can stand? How can I be ready for the big one? How can I stand without fear when the lamb appears? How can I not be one of the people that actually cries out for rocks and mountains to fall on me because I'm so afraid of the lamb when he appears? right? That's the question tribulations should cause every one of us to ask is who can stand. And what's really cool is, I don't know if you noticed, but it's answered in the next chapter. So at the end of six, who can stand at the beginning of seven, it reads this way. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea saying do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads so who can stand when the the lamb returns to judge and the answer is those who have a seal on their foreheads who are they well they're described in two ways notice that they're described in two ways by what John hears and then what John sees So when he hears, he hears them described as 144,000 from 12 tribes of Israel, um, from these Jewish tribes, 12 tribes, and this is symbolic numbering, obviously, that, you know, 12 is the number of God's people. It's 12 times 12 times 1,000. This is the complete number. And then John looks, and the ones he heard about, he sees them, and they look a lot different than they sounded, right? What do they look like? Verse nine, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and languages. I believe that this is one group of people described two ways. And we actually saw this happen last week, right? Remember chapter five, when, when John uh, heard of the line of the tribe of Judah, and then he looked and what do you see? A lamb, same person described two ways. I think the same thing's happening in this chapter. We're seeing the same people described two ways. We're seeing a a beautiful picture here of God's full people, Jew and Gentile from every tribe and nation and language and people together as one. There's that beautiful image in chapter four, of the 24 elders, right? We had the the 24 being 12, you had 12 tribes of Israel and they have the 12 apostles, the, the combination of God's old covenant, new covenant people together as one people. I think something very similar is happening here. We're seeing the complete number of God's people. And there's a whole lot more of them than 144,000. I think you guys have probably run into people that are like, they go around door to door and they're saying there's only 144,000 people that get saved. I always think that's kind of humorous. Because I'm like, you in? And they're like, probably not. And I said, I didn't think so. You know, if there's only 144,000 for the entire, you know, Earth's history. I don't know what we're going door to door about, but, um, (laughs) but what you see here is you see the 144,000, then he looks and it's what it's a multitude that no one can number. So that would be an answer you could give them and say, Hey, did you read when he looked what he saw? You know, he heard 144,000, but what did he see when he looked? He saw a multitude no one could number. And the fact that this is God's people, old Testament, new Testament, all combined together, worshiping him is confirmed in verse 13. Take a look at it. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So these are people that have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. The description of Christians is a description of people who have trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation and notice something about them. The question at the end of chapter six was what, who can stand? Notice their standing. Look at verse nine. A great multitude that no one can number from every nation and all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb. And they're not standing in fear. Look, they have palm branches in their hands and they're crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who's seated on the throne and to the lamb. So who can stand those who have had their sins washed away by the blood of the lamb. And not only are they able to stand when the lamb appears, the same lamb that's scaring people saying mountains fall on me. They're able to stand before and rejoice with him. They got palm branches and they're worshiping him and they're enjoying his presence. How about you? I think it's very important. The most important question you could possibly ask of yourself is, can you stand when Christ appears? He's going to, okay? We've been thoroughly warned, right? We've been told. There's been graphic images to show us in the world. He will return. Can you stand when Christ appears? And you have an opportunity this morning, guys. Listen to, listen to what God says from, from the book of Isaiah. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall become white as wool. Isn't that great? God's like, come on now, come here. He's like, you know you're a sinner. I know you're a sinner. You can be whiter than snow. And how can you do that? Verse 14, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Jesus this morning will exchange your dirty rags of your sin for a white robe of his righteousness for free, for free. Okay, you turn from your sin you trust in him and you get that for free and it's permanent. Why would you refuse? It makes no sense. The only thing that makes sense is you love something more. But that thing, guys, is obviously going to be taken away from you. Notice that God's people here are not only righteous by Jesus' blood, but look at verse 3. They're also sealed in their foreheads. This seems strange to us. God marks his people as his own on their foreheads. This isn't a literal mark. This is actually taken from Ezekiel 9. In Ezekiel 9, God's going to go through and judge uh, Jerusalem. And he tells the angels, hey, mark all my people first, right? It's a way of saying, like, I don't destroy my people along with the wicked, right? And so they get marked first. Then he comes through and judges. What does it sound like? Sounds like the Exodus, right? Sounds like the blood on the doorposts. There's not a literal mark, but he marks his people. Later on in chapter 13, we're going to see that the enemies of the Lord also have marks in their foreheads, right? Chapter 13 and 14. I don't think that marks literal either. I think the, what it's saying is the Lord has his people clearly labeled. Okay, they're clearly labeled as if it's written right across their foreheads. We don't see that, but God sees that. God knows who his people are. He sees the mark, his own mark, or the mark of the beast upon every person. He knows who are his. Revelation 7 assures us that in the midst of tribulation, he knows his people and protects them. I love the picture here because, you know, there's all this kind of chaos happening. And then in the beginning of 7, he goes, wait, 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 wait. Before we let anything else happen, let's seal our people. Let's mark them out. And it's a picture that God protects us through tribulation. God seals and protects us through tribulation. It's not that we won't experience tribulation. Jesus said, in this world, you will have what? Tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He says later, he says, I don't ask that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. God doesn't protect us from tribulation. He protects us through tribulation. I think that's really important. God doesn't protect us from tribulation. He protects us through tribulation. God's seal means that tribulations are never God's wrath to us. He knows exactly who his kids are. You know, just like in Egypt, when the plagues came upon, God knew exactly who his people were, right? And this reminds us that God has marked us out as clearly as it is on our foreheads. He's marked us out for grace, not wrath. It reminds me of when I would go to pick up my kids from elementary school. And the bell would go off and there'd be that swarm of kids coming out of the gate. And it was all just a blur of kids, right? It's kind of like crazy. You don't want to stand in the wrong spot. And they're all flooding out. And it's a blur of kids, except for what? Except for the faces of my kids. They're crystal clear in my sight. Crystal clear. All the other kids a blur. Those kids are mine. That's the way God looks at us. He has us marked out super clearly. And tribulations, guys, Re- Revelation 7 tells us also that tribulations will never make us fall away. Reminds us we've been sealed. We can't fall away, even through the greatest of tribulations. And that was the primary concern of the the spiritually awake Christians that received this letter, is they would hear about the things that are coming. They would see the things that had already come, and they would wonder, will I hold on? You know, will I hold fast to Jesus? That's the question we need to ask. The question isn't, you know, how much will we suffer? The question is, will we hold fast to Jesus until the end? You know, one of my neighbors, we were talking about it and she was saying she was on a walk with her husband and, you know, she asked him like, you know, they put a gun to your head and ask you if you worship Jesus, what are you going to say? You know, it's an intense walk. It's the kind of stuff that I'd say to my wife when we're on a walk, you know, God will keep us firm until the end. He'll give the grace for that when it's needed. And you know what guys, Jesus has not lost a single Christian yet. You're not going to be the first. Romans eight thirty five says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that truth in Romans eight is beautifully depicted here in Revelation seven, where God stops what's about to come and then seals his people. Take a look at verse three. Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. He's like, "Wait, wait, 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 stop, stop the storm. Mark all my sheep. Okay. Let it roll in. And when the storms of this world have their course, he will not have lost a single sheep. He doesn't do that. He doesn't lose anyone. And he's going to bring us to the best pastures. Look at verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in this temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence and they shall hunger no more. Neither shall thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes is it's a preview of the new creation. That's a preview of what the world's coming to. You can read about it in revelation 21 and 22. That's a little preview of what's coming guys for us. The tribulations of this world are actually birth pangs of that world coming. They're birth pangs of the new creation. Jesus told us that, right? In, in Matthew 24, he said, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. <laughs> is that great? See that you're not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of birth pains. Those tribulations that are experienced in this world are birth pains for the new creation. It's the pain before birth. And a lot of these tribulations, guys, especially the trumpets, if you read them, maybe this afternoon, you read chapter eight and nine, you'll see in those trumpet judgments, a lot of them sound like the 10 plagues that came upon Egypt, and they have a similar purpose. Tribulations warn the world of the coming judgment. You know, Pharaoh and the Egyptians were being warned one plague after another of the coming judgment. Non-Christians are being given the grace of a chance to repent. Tribulations are God's judgment on the world, not on us. Remember that when the final judgment came in those 10 plagues, the people were covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. We too are sealed and marked out as his. Tribulations are also the rumbling of the new creation coming. You know, when when those plagues came upon Egypt, it told the Jews, God's people, it told them that he was coming through on his promises of promised land, right? And that's what the tribulations do for us. They're evidence that God's promise is standing. Guys, for us, I I think, you know, it'd really be worthwhile this afternoon. You read Revelation 21 and 22 and just realize for us, guys, the end of the world is not the end of the world. Okay? You guys realize that? For us, the end of the world is not the end of the world. It's the beginning of a new world. How does that make you feel? Let's stop and ask how we feel. That's a very 21st century question. How do you feel about that? Right? You feel more courageous? You feel more hopeful, feel more joyful, feel more peaceful, feel more worshipful. That's what God gave the book of Revelation for, okay? He gave it to us so that we could remain defiantly happy in Jesus. So let's do that, guys. Let's remain defiantly happy in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it explains the things that we deal with here we thank you that it gives us a grid for understanding the, the sufferings of this current age, the difficulties we experience, the strange times we're in, the, the hardships. we thank you that for us, this, this is not meaningless. This is not random. This is not fate. This is not the gods. This is you. This is you bringing our salvation even closer. We pray, Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, that you would feed us through that as you have just fed us through your word. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. One of the ways we remain defiantly happy in Jesus is by taking the Lord's supper every week. And we take the Lord's supper as a way of celebrating. And when we take the Lord's supper, what we're basically saying is about this week is this too did not move us. (laughs) This too does not move us. We believe Jesus' promise. We are waiting for him to return. Uh, The Heidelberg Catechism gives some great direction on who should take the Lord's Supper. We'll have it up on the screen here. But the Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way, and I think this is super helpful. I know you're like, here, Catechism, you tune out. This is good, though, okay? The whole thing's good, but you're really going to appreciate this. The question is, who should come to the Lord's table? And I think this is so helpful. Here's what the answer says. Those who are displeased with themselves for their sin, yet trust that they are forgiven them, and that their remaining infirmity is covered by the suffering and death of Christ— who also desire more and more to be strengthened in their faith and amend their life. But the unrepentant and hypocrites eat and drink judgment to themselves. And so I'll ask you these questions, whether you should take the Lord's Supper. Are you displeased with yourself because of your sin? Are you? I'm displeased with myself. It's, it's a safe place, kind of. You displeased with yourself because of your sin? And yet, are you trusting that your sins are forgiving and that your remaining infirmities are covered by the suffering death of Christ? Anyone? And do you desire more and more to be strengthened in your faith and have a changed life? And if that's you, then we ask that you to take the Lord's Supper with us. On the night that he was handed over for suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and having given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, eat. Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the supper, he took the cup of wine and he had given thanks and he gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood in the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. So let's do likewise. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is given for you to preserve you body and soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart with thanksgiving. Let's take the bite. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you to preserve your body and soul into everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and be thankful. Let's take it together. Lord Jesus, stay with us. Be our companion in the way. Kindle our hearts and awaken our hope, that we may know you as you're revealed in the scripture and in the breaking of the spread. We pray, Lord, that you would grant this for the sake of your love and for the glory of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covegraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.